Rio de Janeiro. With a big man. G'day, Kaya, assalamu alaikum, and welcome to Frio de Janeiro. My name is Abid Imam, and this show is all about engaging conversations with inspirational personalities and public figures to help us understand people, culture, and the world. Today, I'm joined by someone who is absolutely outstanding, and you will definitely enjoy listening to, Perth Borloo-based leader and advocate Zara Al-Hilali. She has a very wide-ranging list of accolades, including West Australian Young Person of the Year for 2022 and a Young Australian of the Year nominee. She's involved with the United Nations across gender equity, climate change and youth leadership. Zara is a champion for representation and has gone global with her advocacy. My reason for inviting her was because I was just so impressed by what she's achieved as a young West Australian, first-generation Aussie, with Iraqi, Palestinian heritage. Zara is a must-hear voice across some really key issues, and I hope you enjoy the messages and perspectives that she conveys so eloquently. Show notes, as always, will be on friodigenero.com. Enjoy. Zara Al-Hilali, assalamu alaikum to you. A very warm welcome. Thanks for joining me on Frio de Janeiro. Thanks for having me. I believe it's your podcast debut, so it's a very big honour for the Frio de Janeiro family. I've done a lot of uh, research. I really respect your uh, incredible story and also your your leadership. Can't wait to discuss so many topics, but love to find out uh, the beginning of your journey. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you've done your homework correctly, you would have noticed that my journey doesn't even incept at my birth. It incepts at my ancestors. And I think a huge part, especially about being Muslim and being the daughter of a refugee and an immigrant, comes from the strength of my ancestors and where they have led me today to utilize my voice and to speak up on matters that are so strong to me. So I think before I even do acknowledge my birth point I think it's so important to me to recognize that it is my ancestors that have I guess drilled that strength into me to be who I am especially coming from an Iraqi and Palestinian background where there has been genocide in both um, places it is so fundamental for me to recognize that it is their existence and their strength and perseverance that I believe has fundamentally shaped who I am. But I think just to give a little bit of a recap as to my birth point, um, I'm the proud daughter of a Iraqi refugee and an immigrant um, who is Palestinian, but she immigrated from um, Jordan because of, of course, the uh, the crisis in Palestine at the moment. Um, my parents both met in uh, the western suburbs of of Sydney. Um, which is where I was born, actually. And I think it is seriously their settlement processes within Australia that have shaped who I am. Um, I think if you've done a bit of research, you would have noted that I really do touch on the fact that I grew up in a low socioeconomic household. I'm one of eight children in my family. And I think just seeing the implications of the settlement process on my parents, especially living through them, and I guess struggling with the socioeconomic status that um, I guess shaped our lives entirely, but the the challenges such as discrimination, employment, language barriers, um, truly did, I guess, place this emphasis upon me to continue to I guess, pay 
homage to my parents' strength and perseverance. So a lot of what I do now is because of my parents. A lot of what I do now is because of the barriers that we collectively experience, not just my parents, but I think the settlement process undeniably um, creates intergenerational ripple effects. Um, so alhamdulillah, I'm, I'm, we're past a lot of the barriers that did um, institutionally barricade us. But I do think that um, it is so important to recognise that it is truly their identities as refugees and immigrants to Australia that has placed me with this, I guess, utmost utmost um, urgency to continue to utilise my voice to create that change within my own grassroots communities. How have you connected with understanding the story of your ancestors? Yeah, great question. And I think it's quite hard sometimes, especially because I am the daughter of two parents who grew up in genocide, who witnessed the death of their family members. Um, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie and say that it's been an easy journey because I've I've seen a, quite a lot of hesitance in my parents in sharing their own stories and speaking up about some of the experiences that they faced. But I think it's firsthand that experience of asking those hard questions over time it's it's taken me so long it's this isn't just a one day journey of asking my parents okay like tell me about my grandmother tell me about my great grandmother but it's also the fact of listening to how some of their scars were lived during the peak of some of the challenges that they experienced with our ancestors as well. So I think it's it's fundamentally derives back to that trust-based relationship that I think some people don't really speak about, especially when it comes to your parents. You're you're almost, I guess, um, taught to have this automatic trust-based connection. But I think when there's a lot of trauma, you really do have to work on it. But alhamdulillah, um, a lot of what I've seen now is pictures, um, clothing, um, and I think it is those artefacts that are so physical that share stories more than words do sometimes. So that's one way that my family has connected with me in terms of sharing their stories. Yeah, you said that early on there was some hesitancy, and I know from personal experience that's definitely been the case, you know, trying to understand about the journey of great-great-grandparents moving from, not even moving, but the colonisation process uh, you know, the British taking people to to Fiji, for instance. Um, and then over time, once you ask more questions, I found that they were more open. But how's that experience with you asking questions? And then has that changed at all? Yeah, still a lot of hesitance from my mum's side, I must say. Um, I think this is something that I feel as though most Palestinians will resonate with. And it is that consistent fear that you do need to prioritise your safety in certain spaces. So my mum is very... Um, often hesitant, especially when I am in public spaces speaking about my Palestinian heritage, because there is quite a lot of, I guess, media controversy around the issue. And there is quite a lot of trauma that a lot of Palestinian communities do consistently dig deeper. Whereas contrastingly with my father, who was a refugee who fled the Saddam Hussein regime, he's so prideful of his journey and he consistently loves, now that we've evolved that relationship, to tell me more and more about for example, my grandmother, who he hadn't seen for over 10 years, um, and they were separated by a refugee camp. He loves telling me those stories because he wears them as though they are his survival. Um, so I think it's 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 quite complex, especially when you're from two completely different countries, um, to, I guess, find the parallels, even though they are quite two regions that are completely um, close by each other by ge geography. But it's it's different because I think my mother's pain is still, I guess, consistent, especially with what's going on in Palestine right now. 
Whereas I think for my father, even though it, there is quite a lot going on in Iraq, there is still a, a lot of genocide that is, um, I guess, brushed under the rug. Um, I think my father just feels so grateful to consistently find courage in his strength and find, um, I guess, closeness with his community because there is quite a heavy Iraqi community in, in Perth that I am a part of that have had shared similar experiences. This show, uh, Frio de Janeiro, is really about understanding cultures and exploring the world. How have you been able to explore the Iraqi and Palestinian culture, knowing that there's been challenges with travelling and the like? You, you've said that there's a strong community locally, but have you had an opportunity to, in your lifetime, visit those places? No, unfortunately not. Um my mother is still quite hesitant about me traveling to Palestine. And I must preface that I'm a very big traveler. I love to travel. And whenever I have an opportunity, I love to do at least two or three countries that reside next to each other. Um, but my mom is still very skeptical about me, I guess, touching that region on my own, um, because of course, there's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of, um, a lot of experiences that she still has kept um, secret, a secret from me. Um, with Iraq, unfortunately, I haven't either. Um, my father actually um, often goes back, but unfortunately, times have never matched with me. And Iraq is one of those places where you do need your family because it is such a community-based um, uh, country. So it is quite wise to go with family. And so in terms of answering your question, I think the way that I've stayed connected um, actually I guess, dates back to when I used to be quite embarrassed to even state my identity. And I think that this is something that most uh, multicultural young people who do come from refugee or migrant backgrounds go through. You go through this, um, I guess, unwavering desire to be as Anglo as possible, to fit in, to make sure that you aren't being othered. And I've, of course, faced quite a lot of barriers, such as bullying in high school, or being fearful to eat my food in, in some classes, because, of course, there's mockery that follows you because you're different. Um, but I think over time, especially throughout the most recent six, seven years, um, specifically in university, I've found to I've, I've come to find my community because I've had that liberty of doing so. I've had that liberty of recognizing that there are safe spaces within us. And unfortunately, I think if we if, if I look at myself at like 15, I wasn't aware of these spaces because I don't think a lot of these diverse and culturally safe places are are targeted to younger people. I think they're more so targeted to people above 18, but I did certainly find my crowd as I grew older and I, I guess, had those conversations with people who looked like me in spaces all around me. How did you remain strong in, uh, you know, bullying is something that can really cut to the core. So mm -hmm. what helps you at that time to remain steadfast? Yeah, good question. And I I, I think uh, it's quite a sad one because I think when you're younger, you have the tunnel vision. And I don't think for me personally, I did, didn't necessarily have anything to hold on to, anything to grip onto. I think as you progress, however, as you enter spaces, you start employment, you have that liberty to do things more freely and flexibly to find your crowds. You really do find those people and you have those dialogue discussions that are so imperative to your growth. And I think it all comes down to personal experience and it all comes down to having that opportunity to freely connect with diverse communities. It's not necessarily communities that look like yourself. And I'm I'm a very big advocate that we need to consistently find um, collaborative approaches with people, for example, from interfaith spaces or different um, 
different culturally and linguistically diverse communities, I think it's so important to branch out and to be a part of groups that I guess are different to your own. So yeah, it's 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 quite sad because I think young Zahra didn't necessarily have that. Um, but I'm I'm proud that now, especially as a young 22-year-old woman, and I see my young sister who just started high school a week ago, I'm able to push her into the direction to find her spaces, to have those conversations with her friends and to, I guess, share the beauty of being different, to share the beauty of being so culturally and linguistically diverse within a space that doesn't necessarily highlight the beauty of that. You mentioned interfaith and uh, you are shortly going to be off to Qatar, uh, Doha, I'm guessing, to speak at a large interfaith conference. Tell us about that one. Yeah. So um, a common world uh, every year, starting this year, um, post-COVID-19, of course, um, holds a global interfaith uh, summit, bringing together some of the world's largest young leaders um, from religiously diverse backgrounds. And my role in this summit is to explore collaborative approaches with young people from different interfaith backgrounds, but to also present on my own work. Um, I was recently at Duke University kicking off my fellowship, um, specifically exploring how climate justice can be tackled by the Islamic community in rural Western Australia for young refugees from Islamic backgrounds. So I'm very excited to be exploring how we can um, collaboratively work with each other to, I guess, unite some some diverse demographics that have been institutionally left behind within spaces of social justice. But I think, especially in my line of work, um, can kicking off my fellowship and my research um, for climate justice, it is so important to recognise that some of these sustainable development goals, especially in the global north, are not um, intersectional and inclusive of those diverse voices. So I'm particularly keen, keen to explore that lens of how we can collaboratively work together. I love how you've become an international speaker now, <laughs> very accomplished with uh, speaking in front of large audiences and conveying that message. How have you become such a accomplished public speaker yeah uh, good question and you know what I have a vivid memory of when I was at uh, when I was about eight um my my dad took me to the library and at the library back then um specifically in my community they'd have like these sing-alongs and like they'd have like these small little community events and I remember I put my hand up and I sang a song a Christmas song of all songs to be honest um and I just remember that moment and I just loved being like just loved singing I loved talking I loved presenting in a group and I think it's definitely something that has been ingrained within me at such a young age but particularly over time, it is so important to recognise that there are so many free resources out there that are available for young people to pick up their public speaking skills. So I think over the over the years, I've definitely partaken in quite a couple of different opportunities. But one that vividly stands out is, I believe I was 17 years old. Um, so about five years ago, five, six years ago now, um, I was... Uh, chosen for this program with the Youth Affairs Council of Western Australia called Shout Out, which provides a two-day public speaking training that commissions young people to actually um, be provided with opportunities across Western Australia to publicly speak at a paid rate. So back then, and I, I'm sure if you've had any um, experience in the social justice space, back then we didn't really have any commissioned opportunities where we were getting paid for social justice initiatives or to share our stories. So it was so huge to be a part of this training and to 
for example, be booked out like a hundred times per year to give speeches at different schools or to to speak at private sector events um, and just to share your story. So I think that was a very foundational event that um, I really did value. And it's it's quite funny because it now has a loop effect. Just at the end of last year, I um, designed the program for the new generation of next young speakers. So um, the program is so brilliant. And if there is one resource that I'd love to share is just to have everyone keep their eyes peeled for possibly this year's intake at the end of the year. So what did you design for the next generation? How did you make it a yeah. challenging program? Yeah, absolutely. I really did restructure the um, training to ensure that we are providing a decolonial lens in terms of public speaking and just making sure that we do recognise, I guess, some of the lessons in terms of public speaking that aren't aren't necessarily highlighted. So, for example, I think there's this misconception that when you get an opportunity, you can grab it with all your might. But I, I think contrastingly, we really do need to prioritise safety at the core of public speaking. There's a lot of um, hazards, especially for young people who don't necessarily know their trajectory in life and what they want to do um, and what they should be saying online or what they shouldn't be saying online. So, for example, if you choose to get a job with the government in a couple of years, um, it is important to recognise that there are some things, albeit they might just be innocent um, social justice related items, but you, you do need to be careful that you are prioritising, I guess, your future goals um, at the core of why you are speaking in spaces and just highlighting how you can convey a message in a way that is, I guess, safe to yourself, but also safe to your future self as well. I noticed uh, you've been spending some time in America. You mentioned Duke University and the fellowship there. What are you focusing on in that program and that fellowship? Yeah, so I mentioned that um, that program specifically focuses on rural refugees in Western Australia, specifically those who identify as Muslim. Um, my goal entirely for the past five years has just been to amplify as many um, young people from refugee, migrant and multicultural backgrounds to partake in social justice initiatives and to envision themselves as leaders within governance and leadership structures. And I think that my fellowship at Duke University ju does just that. It, it allows young people from refugee backgrounds who have essentially been institutionally marginalised from the inception of their arrival in Australia to become leaders within communities and to partake and be provided with resources that can strengthen community collaboration but can also create a ripple effect of um, of changes within the sustainable development goals. Um, so I, I'm really grateful for my fellowship in terms of how I'm able to create tangible outcomes. So my goal right now is to establish a... Um, a climate refugee um, summit within rural Western Australia, within a specific city called Katanning, um, which mm -hmm. has a large Afghan Hazara minority. So, um, inshallah, God willing, um, the goal is to equip those young people to be the leaders within Katanning, but to also be provided with resources to build climate justice strategies within that small rural community, which unfortunately isn't necessarily resourced right now. So that's the goal, um, but it bridges into the big goal of just making sure that our voices are valid within spaces that have been traditionally exclusive of us. Thank you. Yeah, um, Katanning is a really cool place. I love when you drive in, you've got the flags of the different countries yeah. and so diverse. I'm guessing you spent a bit of time there? Yeah, I actually, I, not a bit of time, um, Tiny bit of time. So I once, I think it was about four years ago, I actually delivered a um, a workshop to about 
maybe 70 um, employees from settlement organizations as to how we can be a bit more inclusive to refugees and migrants when they're working with them. So we implemented new structural changes within different organizations with the police department, with hospitals, schools. Uh, so it's really awesome to do that, but I'm keen to go back and just to see what's changed and the growth of the young people and just to, I guess, connect with a community that I haven't necessarily connected with in a while. Another community that uh, really s- stood out to me when um, doing a bit of digging was Christmas Island. And mm. it's it's amazing that they're, they're actually part of Western Australia, even though they're so close to mainland Indonesia. A beautiful place. And I know you've had a really big part in the youth association there. How did that come about? Yeah, so it's quite an interesting story um, and one that probably is one of my favourite projects that I've ever worked on. And I say this with so much pride because that community on Christmas Island is second to none. Um, But just for a bit of context for listeners, um, Christmas Island is a small island just right under Indonesia that is um, a part of the Australian jurisdiction alongside Crocus Island. Um, So they're both two small little islands, but um, I'm sure most listeners have heard of Christmas Island. It's previously been used for offshore um, illegal asylum seekers um, and has been used as a detention centre. But in 2020, um, we were fortunate enough um, to be reached by the Islamic Council um, on the island and um, we were speaking to the imam there and he was telling us about how the young people on the island haven't been provided with any opportunity to speak up. They're, they are some of the most passionate kids and um, fortunately I got to experience that but I, from the imam's words I remember feeling like so excited because I heard so much passion that these kids wanted to do um, and unfortunately there was just not enough resources that were available um, so I was fortunate enough to do this project with my sister and one of my close friends and we were um, approached to deliver a youth conference on the island which was so successful it led in the establishment of the Christmas Island Youth Leadership Association um, and this uh, conference explored how we can create tangible policy uh, strategies that can be presented to government officials. Um, but funnily enough, the project doesn't end there because there because there was a lot of excitement. We're actually heading back um, in April to establish the first ever policy organisation on the island where young people would directly contribute to Australian public policy. So the goal is to establish a, a governing body of young leaders that will work closely and. Um, with work closely within Western Australia, but to also work closely to advocate what they want. And I, I'm a firm believer that policy is a, a great strategy for young people to get involved and so to create changes, um, especially having um, chaired the Western Australia Ministerial Government Council. I, I just think that, unfortunately, we just don't have enough resources to teach young people the power of policy. And, of course, I think it is a colonial process. That I'm not going to deny that. I think the processes of having to document and govern your strategies and your stories. But I do think that this will be a foundational step in the leaders of um, Christmas Island to partake in governance and leadership like no other before. What have been the um, policy priorities for people on Christmas Island? Yeah, big one has been cost of living. Um, And I'm sure this is a global issue, but 
I, I remember I was, and this was in 2020 before we hit a major rise in cost of living, but I remember walking through the shopping centre and I saw a pun of, of strawberries for 17 Australian dollars and I was so absolutely shocked. Um, but that has been a really big one for the young people on Christmas Island because a lot of them unfortunately can't access loans because there is only one bank on the island. Mm. A lot of them can't purchase houses. Rent is scarce. Um, so a, a big part of uh, the young people's initiatives is to explore how they can participate in, I guess, creating a lot more accessible and equitable approaches for young people to access, for example, accommodation or employment um, to better themselves. But I think another one that has been quite interesting that I'd really love to delve into this time around is climate justice, especially over the past year with COP27. Um, we saw a very big rise just recently about the priorities of including young people in climate justice. And I think especially with the young people on Christmas Island, there was quite a lot of interest in, in being involved in these processes but again, I think a lot of people from migrant and refugee and asylum seeker backgrounds just don't envision themselves in the climate justice narrative. So the goal this time around, hopefully, is just to explore how they can create tangible elements. So last time around, we actually um, created a community garden for the young people on Christmas Island, which is a great way to, to combat climate injustices and to provide a, a, a food source for people within the community. But I'm keen to explore how they're identities and stories fits into the climate justice movement. Uh, I did get to spend a week each in Cocos and Christmas Island teaching athletics there, thanks to the, the state government here. And what I what really took me back about the students there was just how connected to environment they were and and climate issues. Because one of the examples was their teacher would take them to the beach on Christmas Island in the morning to collect float sand, which would be floating from Indonesia. So things like, you know, um, uh, plastic and thongs and all sorts of garbage, and they create artwork out of those those bits of garbage. So that really um, is great to hear that you'll you'll be doing that. Did you um, were you by any chance there during the the Great Crab Migration? <laughs> oh yes, I must say and. Um... It was quite horrific to just like record outside of the car and just to hear crunch, crunch, crunch. <laughs> because you're not like they 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 block off the roads when there are crab migrations for any of um, any people listening. So you take alternative detours, but sometimes you can't avoid them. So it was it was quite shocking to just hear those crunches. And I think it's something that I'm really not looking forward to because they are so beautiful. It's such a sight. Yeah. And did you also spend time in Cocos Island? No, unfortunately not. We are actually um, running a training similar on Cocos Island as well. Um, but my sister will be delivering that one, which is super exciting. Um, and I'm keen to see how that goes. Well, yeah, for the listener, I highly recommend Christmas Island and Cocos Island, uh, Cocos Keeling Islands uh, as beautiful destinations as part of Western Australia. Um, it's still a little bit pricey to get out there, but definitely a hidden gem and worth it. I want to know about the the leadership training and mentorship you provide to younger people. What are some of the key messages around being a, a strong, authentic leader that is really important as you mentor and support the next generation? Yeah. Very good question. Um, and you did send me some questions before, so I didn't quite do my prep on that one. But I think just um, 
sticking true to myself. I, I've taken quite a lot of, I guess, um, strength and knowledge from leaders around me. And I think, like, for example, shouting out a couple, um, Federal Minister for Youth, Anne Ali, has been such a great supporter of mine and she has been so foundational in my growth. And I think from from her individual self, what I take from her is her strength and resilience to consistently stick true to herself. And it's something that I've really struggled with, especially over the years in terms of being in the social justice space. Um, hate is something that I'm not I'm not new to. It's something that I experience almost every time I post online. There's a lot of death threats, there's a lot of trolling, there's a lot of sexual harassment. Um, and it is quite confronting, but I, I take quite a lot of courage and and resilience from these leaders, like politicians, like, for example, um, the Honourable Anne Ali and, um, for example, Mahreen Faruqi, who's also another incredible source, and Lydia Thorpe, just in the media today, um, sticking true to their values and just consistently finding, I guess, their own safe spaces in their own communities where they can go back to to find supportive elements. So a key learning that I consistently try to preach is to find your people and to find your supportive mechanism because that's one thing that I definitely did need especially the first time when I did um, face online hate and I, I I don't like this day sticks in my mind I remember I published an article and the comments were flooded with hate um, online and it was it was surprising because it came from my own community um, it came from my own Muslim community it was an article um, that I had written about the Muslim community and how we need to do better to be a bit more inclusive um, but and and then I didn't have my I didn't have my audience and I didn't have my community back then. I didn't have people who were looking after me back then or who were telling me um, that I was safe where I was. So my mind automatically went to default that, oh my goodness, like I need to delete all my social medias. I can't be online. Like I'm I'm scared I'm gonna be doxxed. Um and and yeah, these things do happen. They they I'm not gonna deny that. And I've seen quite a lot of leaders experience the same things like um Mariam Bezadaze, um uh, Yasmin Abdul Majid, who left the country, um, it, it's it's not new experiences, but I think the beauty of having your community and the beauty of having people that support you is they consistently reaffirm to you why you do what you do. They are your your mind. They are the positivity of your mind. They they consistently remind you of who you are when you can't even remind yourself of who you are when you look in the mirror. So I, I'm thankful now to have my my own community in the variety of different spaces, from educational to work purposes to friendships. And it is it, it's something that I really do push young leaders who are especially looking to have an online presence to find before they do decide to. Um, do something that might not necessarily be controversial at the time, but honestly, as as young people from multicultural backgrounds or as young people not even from multicultural backgrounds, from diverse backgrounds, it's something that is it, it is something that is a major risk. Thank you. And please never stop with the uh, <laughs> despite that stupid idiots out there. But uh how can we be better? I'm I'm asking this question from the perspective of uh a man from the Muslim community what can we do? How can we be better at things? Yeah, that's a big question. And I think there are definitely different approaches with nuanced perspectives. But I do think that one thing that I'm really trying to channel, especially over this year, is just to listen more and to step back a bit. And I think that, that that's something that I think um, was taught even 
during my teachings at Islamic school from the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, just listen. There's so much beauty in listening. There's so much beauty in stepping back in spaces. And I really do think that, you know, sometimes we do come in with our own diverse perspectives and sometimes we do think we're right. And I've thought 101 times that I'm right. Sometimes I walk into spaces in social justice where I think, goodness, like, there's no way that this person I'm talking to can be right. I, I, there's no way that uh, social justice can be bargained, for example. But I do think that there is so much nuance. There is so much background and storytelling and, and lived experience that shapes the way that individuals think. And I think sometimes if we just step back and we listen and we, and we go home and we sit with our thoughts and, and we don't provide an answer ultimately, it's totally fine. It's totally fine to just sit there and listen. And that's something that I hope to channel. And I really do push a lot more people to to be the listeners in the room. Don't don't be the speakers in the room. Be the listeners and just just sit with your thoughts and just remind yourself why you're in that room. Um, and I do promise that it does create a meaningful impact. It's something that I've definitely been practicing, and it's something that I'm quite proud of myself for for practicing because it does ultimately shift my perspectives maybe not in that moment maybe not when I go home a week later but but months later I could have an internal click in my brain and it'll all make sense as to why why listening is so imperative in discussions that are sometimes controversial or discussions that are sometimes hot-headed I've seen that you're into poetry and that is an area that I have not listened enough of for instance and as someone who is probably a lot more of an expert in poetry as I am, what are some steps to get started in it? Because I think it's a art form that is, you can say in a really respectful way, ancient, and it allows you to tap into, um, for instance, ancestry and some really beautiful storytelling. So I know it's not one of the questions I uh, gave you in preparation. Don't worry, I've done homework though. Uh, tell me about this preferred preferred art form of yours. Yeah, look, I think it definitely goes back to me reading. And I think to anyone who has a um who has an interest in poetry, I'd definitely start with reading. And if you're not a reader, write. And it doesn't have to be rhyming, it doesn't have to be making sense. Just write about your day. Write about something that you're passionate about. Write about your family, your friends, love, happiness, write about anything. Um, I personally love the alternative route of reading because I think reading really does enhance your perspective and it really does, I guess, open up your mind in a way like no other. And I've been such a reader. I must say my vision is absolutely horrible because I used to read um, under my lamp and my mum would scream at me and she'd tell me, and now my vision's bad, but just read, like have have those sources. And I think another alternative perspective is to listen to podcasts because I do think that the knowledge that you get externally is so important to shifting your poetry. It really does, I guess, do that click effect in your brain again where things start to make sense and reading's the way that it makes sense for me. But in terms of actually writing down my emotions and writing down poetry, for me, again, it, it starts from writing. So I'm a very big journaler. I journal my my days sometimes. Um, and sometimes I will just write about a certain issue. So, for example, it could be, a um I'll give you an example yesterday my best friend who I haven't seen for a year because she was married she came she came back to Perth um who uh, is such an extraordinary and phenomenal woman um that I take so much pride from um knowing her and I just went home and I wrote about it and I think that the common theme of that what I wrote was about love was about happiness was about friendship and and you start to see elements in in 
your plain language that you can warp up into poetry. But I do think that there is something that I that that is not necessarily highlighted to newcomers. Poetry doesn't have to rhyme. It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to have alliteration. It doesn't have to have um, your common steps to what poetry looks like in the media. Um, so poetry can just be your written words. It can be how you feel. Don't don't make it um, too complex. It just be simple. Start from there, and it flows. I promise you, it flows. Do you read um, or absorb poetry in English, or is it also because I know in Arabic there's some really beautiful poetry? Yeah. Arabic is very beautiful, but I must say I am quite. I, I do follow English poetry, and it's so embarrassing to say, but I think the dialect of English, especially um, especially like the more complex poetry is a lot easier to follow in English. I must say Arabic, uh, Arabic like in your traditional Arabic um, is so hard to follow. And if I was reading it, mind you, let me tell you, my mind starts to, it starts to overlap. It starts to wire over each other. So not the best for me. Yeah, I'm currently learning the Arabic alphabet as a starting point. I've got yeah. some catching up to do, but um, yeah, it's tricky. It's definitely tricky. Yeah. Uh, are you a fluent speaker yourself? I would say not really. I'd say my Arabic is um, Palestinian and Iraqi, and if anyone knows the difference between both, you'd know that's two completely different Arabics. Uh, Iraqi Arabic is, I like to describe it a vacuum cleaner Arabic because it's so, it's so throaty like you use a lot of your throat in Iraqi Arabic whereas Palestinian Arabic is so smooth so my Arabic is an intersection of both and sometimes I, I can't for the life of me speak to um, people from the North Africa region anywhere else I can get by so I'm fine in Arabic but it it's easier to interact with Iraqis and Palestinians. Is this the modern standard Arabic so is the written easily no, no. like you, no it's all very different is it? It's all very different. Okay. Yeah. So that's uh, that question itself shows how much I know about Arabic <laughs> as a study. Yeah, it's a bit of catching up. But uh, I want to go into uh, the next thing, which was, yeah, so you said journaling and then journalism. So yeah. that is something you're studying. So clearly it is natural for you to to love that writing element, the journalism part of it I was interested in what angle of journalism is your passion yeah so I actually uh, just to clarify I, I've just finished my degree so I finished um, my law degree and my journalism de degree which is so exciting um, but I've always been interested in social justice and if you speak to any of my professors you'll know that all my assignments in university were always about social justice they had to try and push me to do anything that wasn't social justice um, but I think my identity really does intertwine with why I write about social justice so I've been fortunate enough to work um, on a couple of pieces um, about social justice and I think specifically highlighting um, the sustainability goals, uh, development goals as a key mechanism in terms of amplifying some of those stories. As I mentioned, my ultimate goal in the past five years has been to amplify those missing perspectives and that's all that I do. And I think even in even if, for example, a story that I do write doesn't necessarily have to do with those sustainability goal, development goals, it's always about amplifying those missing perspectives within community that aren't traditionally highlighted within mainstream media. And I think especially being a Muslim woman who wears the hijab, it's so difficult um, to see traditional, authentic perspectives being provided um, in a safe manner in journalism. So 
that's my goal. If I should pursue journalism, to just make sure that we are doing it in a safe way that amplifies those diverse perspectives. Do you have any journalists that you particularly follow or admire? Yeah, I really love Antoinette um, Latouf. Um, I think that she is such a wonderful, um, a wonderful, uh, I believe she's a Lebanese woman who is so profound in consistently staying authentic to herself to consistently staying authentic with her values and I think that there's this this perspective in journalism that you need to remain consistently always unbiased but I've found so much power in her speaking about justice and speaking about um, what she values alongside her journalism which is something that I do hope to one day take on. I've seen that you've been featured in Vogue (laughs) what was how does that come about? Such an odd story. So I was actually, I still have no idea how this happened, but um, I was running as president, as the first ever female president in my university for politics. And um, I posted my campaign and the Vogue editor of Australia had seen it and she had messaged me privately and she had said to me, hi, Zahra, love to feature you in Vogue. Could you write a piece for us? Could you email me? And I was so shocked. Like this was so random. Mind you, like on my social medias, I I don't necessarily have a public following. Um, I am quite not too, like Twitter's different. Twitter, we all, we all have to be social justice um, activists on Twitter. But on my Instagram, for example, I'm quite, I'm quite down to earth. So it was interesting that she had just sent me a, DM on Instagram and I'm not sure how she ever found me I'm assuming it's because of that post but it was so it was such a like a oh my god moment like a bucket list moment because I think like Vogue is is an incredible achievement especially for young people who look like me and I I don't even think like I have a privilege I have fair skin you know but I think just being a Muslim woman who wears a hijab it was surreal to be to be messaged and to write a piece so that was so wonderful on the hijab as well, I know that in some certain jurisdictions in the world, it's banned and it's become this political statement. Really love to hear your perspective and give the listener an understanding of the hijab from from your perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think I, I've gotten this question quite a lot, which it saddens me at most because I think a lot of people tend to tend to conflate. Um, the religion with um, the laws at the moment and yes there there is an intersection I think that there's there's a way that Islam has been used in such a horrible manner and it's been justified um, by politicians in such a hor- mm. horrific manner but again I think if you look deep into Islam you will know that your hijab is your choice and that is fundamental in wearing it that will always be up to you it will always be your choice to choose whether you wear the hijab and whether you don't. Um, it's so disappointing um, and so heartbreaking to just see how Islam has been used in such a horrific manner because I think um, my religion and the way that I've been taught my religion is in such a peaceful and beautiful manner and it's 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 so heartbreaking to see it being warped in such an alternative manner. And being a hijabi in Australia, I know you... During summertime, it's very hot, and in in climates in the world where it's challenging. But how's it been in Australia, in particular? Yeah, look, I think I, I still remember the first time I put on the hijab when I was in year four. It was it was quite 
hard for me because the boys in my class, for example, would play who could pull up my rag first. So I think even at the inception of that, it's quite it's quite hard to wear the hijab post 9-11. And I think um, my experience with the hijab has been a love-hate relationship. Uh, there's been times where I've wanted to take it off, for example, because I've not felt comfortable at all. But there's been times that I've loved my hijab. Um, I think especially being in the international affairs space, there's quite a lot of misconception that you can be Australian and Muslim and wearing a hijab at the same time. Um, where, I've, for example, I've been in spaces where people have asked me, and it's not just internationally, it's also in Australia how my English is so good. Or where was I really, where was I born? Was I born um, in Iraq or was I born in Afghanistan? And all sorts of questions that have absolutely no context whatsoever um, and are based on assumptions. So I think it, it's difficult. I think it's really difficult. But I do also recognise that, you know, we're slowly transitioning into a, into a country that is recognising intersectionality and diversity and inclusion. I think we still do have a long way to go in terms of reaching inclusion. Um, but I, 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 what I've really valued over the past couple of years is the the apprehension that people have before asking questions now, which is something that I didn't have almost five years ago. So it's it's good to see things a lot more normalised. It's good to see people be a lot more careful with their words. Um, and I, I hope to God that my sister doesn't experience the same things as well. You know that question, where are you from? You know, and you say, oh, I'm from Australia, mate. How are you? And they're like, no, no, no. Where are you? Actually, where's your parents from? Why are you, why are you brown, basically? <laughs> and, yeah, that's always yeah. a challenging one. It's, you always have to explain yourself in a way. Yeah. Zara, I'm really grateful for your time. I think there almost needs to be a second conversation at some point in time, you know, and I, I want to know, you, you did mention a reading is really important to yourself. What are some of the books that have influenced you and, and you do recommend to people. Yeah. Hold on a second. I'm just looking up my room to 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 pick a book that I should that I should recommend. Give me one second. I'm gonna go get a book and I will be back in a second. <laughs> okay. So I had two books. I, I've bought a poetry book and I've also bought a a book for people to read. The first book, which is my poetry book, is Before the Next Bomb Drops by Remy Um Kanazi, which I think is I can't show it. Hopefully it, there it goes. All right, awesome. A, be- a really wonderful book that highlights powerful poetry, specifically about Palestinian, uh, the Palestinian experience, and it really does compel you to just open up your mind to some of the tragedies that aren't necessarily being showcased in mainstream media. Mm. Um, a very powerful book and one that surprisingly took me over a year to finish because of how powerful it was and because of how sad and and absolutely grueling it was, um, but really would recommend. And the second one actually was sent to me um, by some of my colleagues at the Foundation of Young Australians called Unlimited Futures. It is a uh, um, a collective uh, First Nations and Black writers, um, a, 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 what would you call it? Like it has short stories. I, I've forgotten the word right now, but um, an absolutely incredible book highlighting um colonial uh colonial struggles of black um writers and first nations writers that i do think is so compelling in terms of recognizing how colonization in australia um has 
thoroughly impacted um, some of the inclusion within the country. Um, but yeah. Thank you so much for sharing those. Yeah, to finish, uh, Zara, uh, what are the asks you have of the audience and listener? Any messages you want to leave or how they can find you to support the work you do? Yeah, look, I think the first one that I spoke about previously is find your community. And I am very open um, with helping young people find their community. So I'm always, my messages are always open for any listeners who'd like to find their community, who'd like to be pointed in the right perspective. Um, you can always reach me at Twitter at Zahra Al-Hulali. Um, And the second piece of advice I think is just to, live life with kindness um, in a world that is so dark, especially at the current minute. Um, it's so important to just be kind in any spaces that you are a part of. So if you can profess that anywhere, truly be like the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and just remember to act with kindness and remember to be remembered with kindness. Thank you so much, Zara. Uh, this has been a huge pleasure. Uh, really going to support you going forward and uh, wishing you all the best. Thank you so much for joining me on Frio de Janeiro. Thank you so much for having me. And there we have it. That was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening. As a community-cultivated, independent podcast, your support means the world so we can keep these important conversations flowing, taking Wallyal up to the world and the world to Wallyal up. Until next time, keep smiling, keep scoring.